Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. Can you hear me? <laughs> well, we did finally get around to watching the 12 Mighty Orphans movie. It's actually a good movie. It's very uplifting. For those of you who are unaware, my grandfather is in the movie. Well, a character playing my grandfather is in the movie, and the character playing my grandfather does a horrible job. Okay? The, the movie makes him out to be quite a villain. Um, there have been articles written about the inconsistencies in the movie, so I won't go into any of those. Just the first thing that I noticed was that my grandfather was a lineman for TCU, and he was all conference or all something. And I always remember him being the biggest guy in the room, whatever room he was in. Uh, in the movie, he's kind of this short guy with greasy hair that chews on cigars. So I had trouble getting over that. Anyway, it is a very uplifting movie, and they just took a lot of liberties in telling the story. Last week, we didn't quite make it through chapter 6, so I'm going to finish reading the end of chapter 6, and then we'll go into today's lesson, which is actually chapter 7. We had the feeding of the 5,000 last week. We had Jesus walking on the water. We had the disciples very confused, and Jesus chastises them because they did not understand the lesson of the loaves. The fact that he was able to feed 5,000 demonstrated that he is the Son of God, and they didn't understand that. So we pick up in verse uh, 53. But when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gesenaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So he got off the boat, and as we've seen repeatedly in the book of Mark, the crowds come. The crowds are coming because he can heal them. And we see that the healing is his... Well, it is the sign that he is different. He isn't just another teacher. He has a power that they can't quite understand. The problem that we see, though, is that these large crowds are beginning to attract other attention. The other attention are the people who are threatened by his ministry. And we pick this up in verse, I mean, chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come with, from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So we have the Pharisees and we have the guys from Jerusalem. What this says is he's beginning to attract attention. It's like, what do we do with this guy? How do we stop him? How do we deal with this teacher who's out there threatening our position in society? What we're going to see today is an interesting structure because the 
Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who are probably Pharisees themselves, um, are going to come to Jesus and they're going to question him. And he's going to not answer their question. But he is going to talk to them. He is then going to turn to the crowd and tell them what they need to know about what the Pharisees are doing. And in my mind, the Pharisees are still there. Okay, it's just like, here, here are the guys over here, and I'm going to turn and I'm going to talk about them as if they're not. And then he's going to go inside, and he's going to tell his disciples more about the story. So, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, come and they say, Jesus, your disciples are eating without washing their hands. Now, if that's the worst that you can get on a guy, <laughs> but you have to understand, Mark is writing this to a Gentile audience. So it's like he stops for a moment and turns to his Gentile audience and he says, verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly according to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Close parentheses. It's like he's telling this story, and he has to stop and tell his Jewish audience, this is what they're talking about. We are not talking about hygiene. Let's just get that right out, okay? We're not talking about after you've played in the mud with your grandsons, whether you should come in and wash your hands before you eat lunch, okay? Let me just tell you up front, wash your hands before you eat lunch, okay? This has nothing to do with hygiene. This is a ceremonial procedure the purpose of which is to get rid of the sin that you picked up when you were out there with those sinful people. I go into the real world, and some sinful person may have brushed up against me. I may have gone to the marketplace and paid some money and got some money back. And some sinful person may have touched that money. And that sin is going to work itself into my life unless I go through this ceremonial procedure to remove that sin before I eat. And that's what the Pharisees are complaining Jesus, you're the leader. You're the head of this group of disciples. You're responsible for their behavior. And they are not following the tradition of the elders. We know from Jewish history that around the Old Testament law, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness, etc., etc. Around that law had built this huge framework of extra rules and regulations to ensure that the people were doing what they thought they ought to do to be right with God. 
And this huge framework of stuff is the tradition of the elders. Several hundred years after Jesus, this oral tradition is going to be written down, and it exists today. Okay, We know what's in this. It is ceremonial law created to show that I'm better than you are. No, they really wanted to be right with God. But in their desire to follow the traditions of the elders, they had forgotten that to be right with God, you have to be right with God. Not with, oh, I'm better than the guy next door. So they come to Jesus' disciples, I mean to Jesus, Jesus, a good Jew with good Jewish disciples, and they are not following the tradition of the elders. For the, uh, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. And in a moment, we are going to see very clearly, we are not talking about hygiene. We are talking about removing the external sin that might pollute us. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Keep thinking about that word defiled, because we're going to talk about it. I mean, we're going to mention it several, several times in this lesson. So this is the question that they put to Jesus. Why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders. Why do they not wash their hands properly before they eat? And Jesus is not going to answer their question. Well, he's going to answer their question. They wanted to have a theological discussion about the teaching of the elders and how wonderful it is and how great it is and how it makes us set apart from everybody else and how we are great because of it. And Jesus looks at them and says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Let's just stop right there. What does it mean to be a hypocrite? Well, let's look at the origin of the word. About nine years ago, my daughter auditioned for a part in The Sound of Music. Okay, she was one of the little Von Trapp kids, you know, Do, Re, Mi, and all that stuff. So I was driving her to rehearsal, and they grabbed me and said, we're a guy short. And I said, okay. So I got the part of Herr Zeller, or as I referred to him, the Nazi that talks. <laughs> and I was the bad guy. And there's this one line in the play, it's not much of a line at all. I'm saying something and the maid interrupts me. And I turn to her and I say, be quiet. Well, when the show started, I started spitting this line at her. You know, just be quiet. And I could 
actually hear people in the audience go, <gasps> So after the show every night, after the show every night, we would, the cast would stand up front and shake hands, this was all before COVID, shake hands with people as they left and thank them for coming. Every single night, somebody told me, you're mean. <laughs> now, I have many character flaws. I don't think I'm mean. Okay? That's just not my nature. I've got other flaws, but not that one. But you see, I was playing a character. And to use the Greek term or the English equivalent of the Greek term, I was a hypocrite. I was someone playing a role. It wasn't who I really was. I was playing a role. In the Greek theater, I would be the hypocrite. I would be somebody playing something that I'm not really. That's what it is in theater to play someone else. So what does it mean when Jesus says, you hypocrites? What he's telling them is, you are something, and you are playing some other role. But instead of doing it inside a theater where everybody knows that everybody is playing a role, you're doing it in your everyday life. You are pretending to be someone that you really aren't. And that is being a hypocrite. And he is going to chastise them for their hypocrisy in their presentation to the world that they are the most righteous people because you see we spend a lot of time with our clean water in our clean bowl washing our hands to remove the sins of this world before I sit down to eat my taco. Okay, they didn't eat tacos. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. Now, go home if you're so inclined to be beaten up and Google on, are all Christians hypocrites? Okay, and there's all kinds of answers to this question because there are many in the world today who believe that by definition, Christians are hypocrites. And I think we need to at least address this and there's several reasons people believe this. The first of which is, well, maybe we're hypocrites. Okay. Maybe I don't want you to know that I had a fight with my wife on the way to class today. Now, I didn't. Today. <laughs> but it is perfectly within the realm of possibility. But I don't want you to know that. So what do I do? I put on my mask and I am a hypocrite. So one possible answer about why people think Christians are hypocrites is because sometimes Christians are hypocrites. But there is a bigger answer, and that is an understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Okay? 
You accept Jesus Christ and you are declared righteous before God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But guess what? You're still living in this world and you're not perfect. You may think you are. Your spouse knows better. You may think that you're perfect, but you're not. And you know what? That's okay. If anyone says they are, are not a sinner, they are a liar and are not speaking the truth, is what John tells us. You're going to sin even though you're a Christian. The question is, are you pretending that you're not? Are you pretending that because I'm better than you, well, I'm better than you? Or are we as Christians acknowledging the fact that we too struggle with anger, hatred, lust? Well, we're going to see a list here in just a moment of 12 different things. To not measure up to Christ's perfection doesn't necessarily mean that we are hypocrites. It just means that we're on this journey together, what the scripture calls sanctification, to become what Christ has put in us is part of the Christian life. To pretend that we're not on this journey because, hey, we've already arrived, makes us a hypocrite. So, Jesus turns to these Pharisees and these guys from Jerusalem, the bigwigs, and he says, Well did Pro uh, Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the peop This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he adds on, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Let's look at two big groups right here of things. Here are the commandments of God. They are spelled out in the scripture. And I might add, just to make sure we cut them a little bit of slack, I might add, they did have dietary laws. They did have things they weren't supposed to touch. They weren't supposed to eat. If you touch a dead guy, you are unclean. Now, that doesn't mean that you're, you've lost your salvation. It just means there's certain things you can't do until you are cleaned. So that did exist within the commands that were given to them. So here we have the commandments of God. And over here we have the traditions of men. Now, in our society today, breaking these two apart is sometimes difficult. You know, we think, ah, we don't worry about ceremonial washing. What a bunch of idiots. But you know what? We have our own tradition. And I might add, I'm a big fan of tradition. Okay, I'm a big fan of we've done it this way before. This is the way we always have Christmas Eve dinner at our house. It's the same every year. We have a birthday cake. I mean, that's tradition. And you know what? That's okay. But when these two things come into conflict, 
the commands of God and the tradition of men, which one are we going to follow? And the Pharisees were knee-deep in their tradition and had forgotten the commands. I mean, let's just think about illustrations of our own, okay? The commandment of God says, love your enemy and do good to those who hate you. That is the command of God. This is God's word to you. But our society says you need to kind of stab them back or they're going to think they got away with it. Which are you going to follow? I know which one. No, I don't. We have our own traditions that we have picked up from our society. And at some point, those violate the commandments of God. And when they do, which one do we follow? The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Remind ourselves about the heart. The heart is the center of our being. In Jewish writing, it is the center of who we are, our mind, our will, and our emotions. It is that. And that's important because in just a moment, we're going to talk about the stomach. And when it talks about the stomach, it's talking about that organ in your body that digests food. But when it talks about the heart, it's not talking about, it's talking about the center of your being. Your heart is far from me. These are the religious leaders of this society. And he is looking them in the eye and saying, you're hypocrites and you are far from where God would want you to be. The peoples honor me with their lips, but their heart is far, far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus never tells them why his disciples don't wash their hands ceremonially before they eat. All he does is said, you're wrong. You are far from God. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And he is going to give an example of what they are doing to clearly demonstrate this. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Old Testament law, you revile your mother and father, the community is supposed to pick up stones and throw them at you until you're dead. It's a big deal. Now, the scripture also says that this is the first commandment that actually has a promise connected to it. Because if you honor your father and mother, then you're, you will be blessed. And we have a long discussion about what it means to honor our fathers and mothers. But at this time in history, and probably today, it means that when your father and your mother are elderly and they need support and help, because remember, there weren't any pension plans, there weren't any, wasn't any social security, there wasn't any of that stuff. If your parents ate, it's probably because you helped them get some food. And that 
is honoring your father and your mother. But you say, I, th I think this is just interesting, the, the, the wording of it. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes through the Old Testament law and he says, you know, the Old Testament says thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, anyone who is angry is guilty of murder. Where he takes the law and he moves the law into a condition of the heart. So it's not just good enough to not commit adultery. Lust itself, the heart condition, is bad also. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, because he is the authority. He turns to the religious authorities and say, but you say, but instead of an explanation of what this law really means, what the Pharisees are giving is a way to get out of it. Here is the clear command, but you know what? My father's a jerk. I'm not going to give him any money. I don't want to give him any money. How can I get out of honoring that commandment? That's what they're after. If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. That is given to God. Let's stop right there. They don't even bother translating this word because it's not a word that we're familiar with, but what it means is a sacrifice. I give this piece of land to the church. I'm still going to work this piece of land, but everything that comes off of this piece of land is committed to the church. That sounds good, right? Well, what if I take everything that I have all my earthly possessions, and I say, I give everything to God. I'm the most pious person in this room. And guess what? When my mother needs a buck, I say, I'm so sorry. It's all God's money. I can't give it to you. Because what you've given to God, you can't take back. Even though what you've given to God, you still have control over. So if you need a taco, you can spend a buck to get a taco. But if your mother needs a taco, I'm sorry. Sorry, Mom. Can't happen. Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Look at that phrase. You make void the word of God. Let me just ask a question. Do not, in any form or fashion, raise your hand, because you're probably going to lie to me if you do. Do you ever read a scripture? Not some obscure theological debate about what does predestination mean, but some very clear verse out of the Bible, and your mind start thinking, how can I get out of that? 
How can I live as if that verse doesn't apply to me? I remember very distinctly sitting in this room, standing in this room, teaching a class. We were working through Proverbs, and we were talking about the power of the tongue. And just to make sure I you know, was convinced that this wasn't just some Old Testament thing, I, quoted, I, read, the, I read the verse from the New Testament about you're going to be judged by what comes out of your mouth. And some nice person said, but that doesn't apply to us because we're saved by grace. And you know what? We are saved by grace. We really are. But the verse says you still have to watch what comes out of your mouth. You are going to be judged by what comes out of your mouth. How do we make void the word of God? We read the scriptures and we start thinking, I don't like that one. One of the disadvantages of the way that I teach, which is going through every verse, is I can't skip the ones I don't like. Because you know what? If I could do that, we probably wouldn't be talking about hypocrites today. How do we, by our traditions of what we have accepted from our society, make void the word of God? But you know what? That's all he had to say to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are not you. They're over here. And then he turns to the crowd. And I, like I said, I think the Pharisees are still standing there. They're kind of baffled. These are really smart people. They want to have a theological debate. They want to have that discussion. They are ready. They know more Old Testament history than you and I could ever come up with. But Jesus turns to the people. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Huh. There are things that you can consume through your mouth that can kill you. Let's just face it. My son-in-law was listening to, he was talking to him last night, and he was listening to a book about some early airplane program, and the guy was flying the airplane. He reached into his pocket to get a cough drop, but instead of reaching into the pocket to get the cough drop, he reached into the pocket that had his cyanide pill in it. Now, he quickly put it in his mouth and realized this isn't a cough drop, and he spit it back out. But you know what? There are things you can put in your mouth that will kill you. There are things that you can put in your mouth that will make you sick. But there is nothing that you can put into your mouth that is going to defile you before God, that is going to make you a sinner. You can go outside and eat dirt. I don't recommend it. I'm sure I did it as a child. I'm sure my grandchildren will do it at some point in their lives. But you know what? That is not going to 
destroy your relationship with God. Not one bit. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. More about this because he's going to explain it. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. Here the word parable just means some teaching. You've been teaching something. What does this mean? Remember, these people are all good Jews. You don't eat what I had for dinner last night, which was smoked pork sandwiches, and be a good Jew. We all know that, right? So the disciples ask, what does this mean? And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it, it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And at least in the ESV, there's a great per, a set of parentheses right there that says, Thus he declared all foods clean. Right there, he just told me I could have bacon with my breakfast. My doctor may think it's a bad idea. So here's the question that we do have to address, just to be nice to the Pharisees. Why in the world did God give them the Old Testament dietary laws if, in the end, it didn't matter. Well, in the end, it did matter, just not the way they expected it to. God was creating a separate people, a people who were set apart for God, who were holy, because that is the definition of holy, to be set apart. And he came to them and he said, you are not going to be like all these people around you. And I am going to tell you how you need to live your life. There's certain relationships that you will not have. There's certain things that you will not touch. You will not bow down to certain idols. You won't even have them in your house. There are certain things that will make you unclean so that the world will know that you are separate, that you are holy, that you are different. So when the Jew of the Old Testament refrained from eating a pork sandwich, did the not consuming the pork sandwich into their stomach make them holy? Or... Did the fact that they were obeying God make them holy? You know, there's going to come a time in the Old Testament prophets where the prophets are finally going to say, enough of these stupid sacrifices. They're not doing you any good because you think that by slitting the throat of the lamb, you can live the life you want anytime you want. God is and always has been 
interested in the condition of your heart. And in the Old Testament, to the Jewish community, following the dietary laws was the way they demonstrated to the world that they were set apart, that they were holy. And it made a difference. Because if they didn't follow it, it wasn't that they had pork in their stomach, therefore they were defiled. It meant they had disobeyed God. And guess what? Disobeying God is bad. Always has been, always will be. That's why in the Old Testament there were dietary laws. Peter is going to be taking a nap much later. No, not that much later, but later. He's going to be taking a nap after Jesus has died, been resurrected, and gone up to heaven. He's taking a nap, and he has this vision. And this thing comes down with all these different animals in it. And God says, eat. And Peter says, no way. There are unclean animals in there. And the vision comes again, and the vision comes again. And finally he understands God telling him that that doesn't apply to us. And then there's a knock at the door, and the servant comes up and gets Peter and says, there's a guy here from the Gentiles, and he wants you to come to his house to talk about Jesus. If you're a good Jew, you're not going in anywhere near the inside of a Gentile's house. I mean, let's just face it. You have no idea what sins are sitting on the coffee table. But God had just given Peter a vision. Don't you call unclean what I have deemed to be clean. And Peter gets up and he goes and he shares the gospel. They respond to the gospel and he comes back to his good Jewish friends and goes, I don't understand this at all, but God is working a miracle. And guess what? You and I today have heard the gospel because at some point some Jews said, those Gentiles probably need this too. And that's us. So, Jesus tells them, it's not what comes in that defiles you, but rather it's what comes out of you because what comes out of you demonstrates the condition of your heart. And there's a really nasty list here. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, if we had another hour, we could go through this list and have a lot of fun pointing out the sins of other people. But that's not the purpose of this list. The purpose of this list is to demonstrate to us what resides in our fallen heart. 
You want to know the lesson of all of this? If you think that scrubbing your hands with the strongest soap in the world is going to cleanse you from your sin, you are wrong. Because the sin is a heart problem. And the only person who can address the problem of the human heart is Jesus Christ. So, when you eat lunch today, by all means, wash your hands before you eat lunch. But don't think that washing your hands is in any way making you right with God. We'll pick it up here next week, and we might go over some of these things in this list. But not to talk about other people. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, that Jesus can change our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.